0: Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday, the 11th of September, 2015. Did you know it is my birthday month? Really? Yes. Virgo, 20th of September. So um, I'll get you something nice. Please do. Um, (laughs) It's a Sunday, though. Next Sunday. My birthday. Um, We're having birthdays for whole months now. (laughs) I think so. We've actually got a lot of... A lot of Virgo, a few Virgo birthdays in our office. Good old, the famous Jimmy, our famous dinosaur. (laughs) Um, Anyway, you're listening to episode 63 of the It's a Monkey podcast. As nearly always, it is a beautiful sunny day looking in downtown Sydney. Uh, Friday afternoon, we have had a long week here in the Managed Flitter office. So um, we've really worked hard to carve out 45 minutes for you. So we really hope you enjoy this podcast. But we have a fantastic podcast as always, um, we're going to kick off with some news. And as always, there's uh, lots, of, lots of tech news. Um, um, and this week we had the Apple conference and we'll be talking a little bit about um, some changes to, to Tinder. Um, we've got an interview coming up later on in the show with Eric Elliott, um, who uh, wrote a fantastic article about um, um, how to build high-velocity development teams and um, really one of the best articles I've read if you're a, a tech founder, if you're managing teams. Um, Eric runs a uh, business that um, trains people in JavaScript. He's a JavaScript evangelist, um, I would say, and uh, we speak to him later on in the show, so um, uh, um, that's coming up a little bit later. As always, or often with me, is Nick Barker, who is the product lead at um, Manage Flutter. Front end, doing all sorts of bits, bits and pieces, back end, um, commonly known as full stack, right? <laughs> beyond the full stack. <laughs> eh?
1: Yeah, as always or often, it's good to be here.
0: Um, digging in bits and pieces. Well, let's, um, let's first talk um, Apple. Big week, lots of announcements. Um, quite confusing for us non-Apple folk like me that aren't, you know, absolute obsessies um, Exactly what they announced. New phones, new iPad. Talk us through some of the um, announcements yesterday in San Francisco. Yeah,
1: well, it was uh, pretty standard for one of their, I guess, interim conferences. The same of, uh, sort of thing that we've spoken about before. How one year they'll do the S models for the iPhones. And then the next year they'll do sort of like the big... Reboot. So this was a pretty typical uh, interim year, I guess. They refreshed a lot of products. So, on on the um, sort of less exciting end, there's uh, new new iPad Minis and new uh, standard size iPads as well. So they just refreshed the hardware and all of those. Um, there was a bunch of cool announcements about the Watch, although I don't personally have one, so I can't tell you from personal experience how it's going to affect me. But they're releasing a new uh, watch operating system. So,
0: and there was some new high-end iPad release.
1: Yes. So, moving sort of into hardware, essentially they have released a 13-inch, or they're going to release a 13-inch Retina iPad. So, any of you who have a 13-inch MacBook Air or 13-inch MacBook Pro, it's going to be the size of the screen of your laptop. Um, which is really, really huge. It's, it's, it'll be the biggest tablet on the market. I'm pretty sure, or close to at least.
0: And they didn't announce any changes to MacBook Airs or MacBooks, did they? No, absolutely nothing. Yeah, it
1: was, there. it was all mobile devices. Everything either running uh, iOS or watchOS, essentially.
0: And I believe the price points in some of their new phones are post north of one thousand US dollars. Oh yeah,
1: so the uh, iPhone I the six. S and the 6s plus came out <laughs> it's always confusing to remember the order because as i was saying before uh i don't know if a lot of you realize but samsung has phones out at the moment called the galaxy s6 plus and so there's a Sam- uh, the samsung s6 plus and the iphone 6s plus which are currently you know they're going to be on the market at the same time so it's pretty confusing but um, yeah, they've released refresh models of both the 6 and the 6 Plus. So the the um, 4.7 inch, I think, and the 5.5. Um, and there's some really cool new features that have come out uh, in the hardware space that are really interesting. The biggest of which you'll be hearing about is this new thing called 3D Touch. So if any of you have seen the new... Uh, force trackpads on any of the Apple uh, laptops, the MacBook Pro and the new um, MacBook, the thin one, They uh, the trackpads can now sense pressure. So essentially you can do different things depending on how hard you click. There are sort of two levels of click that you can get by pressing harder. And they've basically taken that tech and they've put it behind the touch screen on the new iPhones. So you can th- uh, sort of, click the touchscreen, I guess, and they have haptic feedback for it. So it feels like you're actually clicking a button. Um, And it allows you to do all these sort of sneaky new features. You've got to go watch the videos if you want to get a sort of a really, really good visual preview of it. But essentially, they're doing stuff like, if you're on the home screen, uh, you can now click on the or or sort of do the new sort of force click the 3D click on the message app for example the messages app and instead of opening it it will open a small little uh quick menu that has like compose new message reply to most recent message you know that kind of thing so they're they're doing these all these new sort of quick look preview features kind of thing which um you've never really been able to do on mobile devices before so it's it's pretty it's really pr- pretty revolutionary actually there hasn't been many changes to the to the touch um to the way that the touch system works is uh, since multi-touch i guess which uh, allowed you to do pinch zoom and stuff like that so it's it's really really interesting what they're what they're doing with it
0: it's um the price points i mean our, our australian dollars weakened a lot so in australia i would imagine they're going to be what 13 14 1500 dollars the yeah, new phones yes outright at I least assume this yeah. is the top end
1: yes uh, yeah so these are these are the very top end phones um, another little interesting thing off to the side uh, People often talk about, oh, you know, like there's the famous comparison, which is like before the, the new range of phones came out, Apple had released like 12 phones in total. And in the same time period, Samsung had released like 800. And so people always go on about, you know, Apple always thinks really carefully about the products they release and they make sure that if they do something, they do it right. One of the things that sort of went counter to that at the, at the um, conference this year was they sort of quietly removed the iPhone 5C from stores... So they've stopped selling them, basically. in in the background of this conference, they've sort of decided that the budget 5C was not a good idea <laughs> at all. And they've silently sort of killed it in the background.
0: It might have been cannibalizing their high-end products as well.
1: Yeah, who knows? I mean, they, they, I don't think they actually ever released really solid numbers on that. So we don't know how it went as an experiment, but it seems that it didn't exactly work out for them. Um, and final, final thing I think that I can remember was the uh, Apple TV got a refresh and they are opening uh, the operating system finally after, you know, people have been predicting this for a long time, but they're opening the operating system on the Apple TV, uh, which funnily enough is called tvOS OS. Um, to developers now, so there's going to be apps built specifically for Apple TV, and they're refreshing the hardware as well, giving it a nice touch remote and stuff like that.
0: And I think Tim Cook, who the CEO of Apple, I think he's um, he thinks the future of TV is basically apps. Yeah.
1: I mean, you're just going to have a, a big mobile device running on your yeah. TV that allows you to just watch movies and stuff like that. And so.
0: sort of anecdotally, I can say, um, you know, for many, many years, I never had a TV. And, and a couple of years ago, when I moved into a new place, I bought a, a smart TV. And that's exactly right. I mean, I watch YouTube on it, Netflix, which Netflix Australia, I'm pretty disappointed with. I find. Yeah, their, me too. Honestly, I, I find the inventory. Um, pretty poor there's obviously licensing issues etc yeah, i doubt uh, it's their fault to be yeah, honest i too. also doubt it's their fault and um and w- and i use the sbs on demand abc on demand mm. um things like that so i i very very rarely watch free to air live tv i mean i and i think we had the chat earlier in the office that, um, live tv live radio is is really in trouble yeah it's it's, it's absolutely it's going to have to morph at the very least if not just totally be revolutionized just talk us through um any of that so the apple watch did they speak there's there's a whole heap of new apple watch besides the software i believe there's new faces new straps new all sorts of yeah uh, they're they're
1: releasing a whole lot of of different colors for things um Different colors, like combinations of both the, the color of the hardware, so the color of the metal, obviously, and there's, a, there's, you know, innumerable new number of strap options and stuff like that. I think one of the really interesting things that Apple's now realizing for, for a long time, they really had clamped down on, on the, the sort of range of industrial design that they were offering. You know, they'd offer one type of computer. It was silver. That was it. You know, they offered, you know, when the when the um, first iPhones came out, there was only one version of it. And now, uh, if you go on their website, they've uh, basically across their entire range of devices, they've released this new, like, rose gold as a color, which is sort of pinky. Um, and they now have that across all of their devices. And I guarantee you that people are going to want to be matching this stuff. You know, they're going to have the same color phone and computer or they get the same color dock for their phone and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think offering people the...
0: Ability to to choose these colors is actually going to be a really big thing for them. And um, I mean, we spoke about in the last podcast how the Apple Watch is the number two wearable after the Fitbit. Mm, it is. Um, I've been using my my um, new generation Pebble watch. I enjoy it mainly, essentially, as a notification device. Mm. Um, their user interface has got a lot to be desired. We bought um, Kate Frappel, who's um, a designer, and. Um, you know, general, general, uh, general hands on deck here. I don't know what else to call us all here. Um, An Apple Watch to have a bit of a play with it, and I actually decided to drag Kate in and to actually. She's just come back from a from a holiday. And um, Kate, do you want to pop in the the mic, Nick's mic, and we'll. we'll I want to chat to Kate about. Um, apple watch from someone who's who's actually used it i mean kate's an iphone user uses instagram a lot pinterest a lot facebook a little bit twitter a little bit um kate what has i mean how long have you been using the uh, firstly welcome to the podcast
2: thank you good to Um, be
0: here talk nice and closely to the mic um how long have you been using the apple watch for it's
2: probably about two months
0: okay and um
2: not long before i left yeah
0: Talk us through what you're loving about it, what you're hating about it, how it's integrated with uh, your everyday life.
2: Um, at the moment, I'm similar to your Pebble, actually, really enjoying the notifications and the. I think they call it the haptics, the vibration behind it. It's really nice. Um, the sound as well. I mean, it, like sometimes you need to turn on silent, but um, it's like a. It's easier than looking at your phone. Yeah. I think in social interactions as well, it's easier to sort of, you know, like it's not as pressing to open your phone you can just sort of be like oh but
0: that's we, it. we spoke about this problem earlier though that often we look at our watch for notifications and we concern that people are looking at like yeah. you know they you know when <laughs> you look at your watch because you're running out of time or you're under time pressure and it's quite offensive sometimes you yeah. know if yeah. you if you're having coffee with someone and you're looking at your watch you know sometimes yeah. i have to say to my friends with someone i'm going to look at my watch it's just i'm actually i've got i've just received a text message you know
2: mm. makes you look a little bit impatient yeah <laughs> sometimes but I don't Think have sound
0: on my Pebble, though. Pebble no doesn't sound. have sound. Okay. Uh-uh. No. Nah.
2: It's, um, it's interesting. Like, I would imagine that it would be very muted, but it's not. It's quite clear. Same with if you make a phone call as well.
0: Yeah, so the Apple Watch, you can make a phone call. I can't make a phone call on, on my watch, but you can actually um, yeah. talk into sort of, uh, you know, um, what, what's that? Um, a microphone? Yeah. yeah. No, what's that cartoon where he's spoken to his watch? Anyway, um, famous... It does feel very 007,
2: though. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: And, I mean, good conversation starter, I bet. A lot of people asking you about the watch.
2: Yeah, I had a... I just went to Dimmick's in lunch, and this guy came over, is that an Apple Watch? (laughs) I was like, yeah. (laughs) It's like, can you make phone calls? Can you send messages? It's like, yeah. It's good. And um, I think the main thing as well, Siri, she picks up very well. Like, you just have to say, hey, Siri. And she's like, tension is grabbed, and... So you can make a calendar
0: entry really easily.
2: Yep. Yep. Messages are easy. I think what I really like is maps as well when you're driving. Yep. It's just like, for me, it revolutionized how I get from A to B if I don't know where I'm going.
0: Yeah. I've also got the maps ones pretty good as well. I get a, a yeah. vibration on, on a turn left, on turn, a turn right.
2: Yep. Vibration. And so even if you're like mid driving, you know, you don't want to look at your phone. It's dangerous. You just sort of say, hey Siri, I want directions to, I want to go home. And she'll go, like, okay. And they'll give you directions home straight away.
0: Look, I, I have to say the only time I've ever had iPhone envy is wanting an iWatch or, sorry, an Apple Watch because it's ah. so much better than the Pebble. It's really, I have to be honest, uh, you know, what what other apps are you using on the Apple Watch? Uh,
2: regularly. Regularly, uh, Weather. Uh-huh. Weather's good. The interface also has sort of by the hour. Yeah. So it's really easy to sort of check. Um I m- haven't really used this app yet, but I think it would be good. Is the the boarding pass so the wallet uh, yep, yep. it comes up and it puts the QR code on your screen. Yep, that's cool. So I, I wanted to use that at the airports, but I wasn't too sure at the time. And a bit too new. It's a bit too new. Yeah, yep. I felt like that. Same with the Apple Pay. Yeah, it'd be it'd be good to use. And the looking at the interface is that looks working looks in Australia? Good. Oh, not too sure.
0: Yeah, maybe that that would be really cool yeah. as well. Um, Mm, interesting. Um, nice. And th- and you mentioned um, Pinterest. Were you using Pinterest?
2: Pinterest haven't got an app yet. Really? they When the Apple Watch was being launched, they were pitching uh-huh. as if they were going to have an app. And it was really interesting. They were going to almost show you where the places that you had yeah. pinned I were and show you directions there so you could visit the places that you'd pinned.
0: Or pins close to where you're or at. close to or where you are, yeah. Very it was, geolo. It was a location. good idea,
2: but they haven't done it yet. Same with Facebook. There's no Facebook oh, Is there no Facebook app? No Facebook, no. no, Facebook, no. You mm, can get Facebook notifications because uh-huh. um, that just comes out of your iPhone, but you can't. There's no Facebook app for the watch.
0: And I, s- I noticed you're still wearing it. I mean, you... Yeah you um do you find because i felt like I, I sort of have to force i wouldn't say force myself to wear it but i'm like i can sort of live without it it's not like as as compelling as my mobile phone on the weekends i don't wear it during the week i wear it because i sort of like to get the notifications and things like that but i mean do you miss it when you don't have it i don't i don't miss it that much to be honest my pebble
2: yes and no uh i think even on my trip you know i started in New York and Canada, so it was sort of very city-based, and I wore it all the time and used it. When I got to Alaska, I didn't really have much use for it. Mm. You know, the battery would run out, and I might leave it for a couple of days.
0: What's a battery life like? Of, mine's about a working week. maybe A, a week? Little, maybe no. a little bit less than that.
2: No, not a week. Yeah, but you 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 have it. to charge it probably every day and a half to two days. Yeah,
0: but yours is a big-color screen. It's, yep. it's you know, the, it's, um, yeah,
2: it's very easy to charge, though. Uh, they've made the um, the cord uh-huh. easy. It's just magnet. You plug it on.
0: No doubt they charge you a fortune if you need to replace it. And Probably. I, 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 I know heard the accessory is very expensive. Yeah, I heard like a, a strap for an Apple Watch is like 200 bucks or yep. something.
2: Yeah. The watch itself is 500, the lowest one, and then all the accessories after that are 200 bucks. Oh
0: oh, no wonder they the yeah. richest company in the <laughs> world. They make a lot they've, of money. They've, they've got a dump hat. Kate Frappell, um, it's nice to have you on the podcast. We'll thank drag thank you in you. again sometime. And Kate um, usually does the editing for this podcast as well. Mm. So um, if you're listening to it, you have Kate to thank. And you can follow her <laughs> on Instagram. On Do you have a Twitter account? Yeah. You do?
2: I've got heaps of followers now.
0: Do you? <laughs> Oh, because you <laughs> use Manage Flutter. <laughs> Woohoo! Remote <laughs> account management. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. So, yeah, we thought we'd give you a um, from the coalface Apple Watch. And um, the next best thing to me having an Apple Watch was having someone in the office having an Apple Watch and I can see every day and get a bit of envy around. Um, Next story, Tinder, which um, I I find quite interesting. I uh, was talking to a friend on the weekend who um, um, is an absolute um, – I call her the Tinder queen. And she was showing me how she uses Tinder. And, uh, Nick, what I found really interesting was Tinder's almost like – It's almost like a social media network, right? You match with these people. They stay matched with them. You upload photos, which are called moments, that stay live for 24 hours. And people can like these moments. And it definitely seems more social media network than dating app in many ways. So Tinder have recently announced the premium version a few months ago, um, which is very clever, which allows you to have a back button in case you didn't say yes or no in the right way, and you can match in other locations in the world. And now they've released something called Superlike, apparently, which I think is um, a bit of a dumb idea, but I mean, it's almost like they're looking for just, (laughs) okay, so not only do I like you, now I super like you. Anyway, tell me your thoughts about Tinder and all those bits and pieces.
1: So I think it's really interesting what you said about Tinder sort of moving towards being more of a social network or trying to be more of a social network because since uh, dating sites first existed, uh, they've all had this same problem, which is that uh, the, their business model has the antithesis of, of retention, right?
0: It's because exactly. Once we're successful, you stop paying us. Yeah,
1: exactly. So the better you are as a dating service, the more likely you are to lose your customers. Um, and so Tinder started off as this sort of very, uh, it was very much about sort of like the speed of the match. And they were promoting that as like, you know, it's the fastest way to date. You don't have to worry about, you know, filling out these huge profiles or anything like that. Um, and then obviously with, with uh, you know, creating these moments and stuff like that, they've been moving towards having a bit more of a permanence around your profile on on Tinder. But unfortunately now, as a result of that, they've swung a little bit too far back the other direction and people aren't taking it as seriously as an app for actually, you know, dating anymore. Because a lot of people just use it casually for fun without, uh, you know, without the intention of actually, you know, going on any dates with the people who they, who they actually, you know, swipe on. So uh, Tinder have sort of... Uh, in order to combat that, they've introduced this feature called uh, Super Like. And, and to give you a, a little bit of background on Tinder, has a very very simple uh, UX model, which is just you can swipe right to indicate that you like someone, or swipe left to indicate that you don't like them. And if two people swipe right on each other, uh, it will give you an indication. It will give you both a notification that you've matched. So what super like does is if you press super like on a person as soon as they see your profile it will notify them that that you've clicked super like on them even without you making a decision on them at all so rather than being a mutual match it actually notifies them as soon as they see your picture that that you've hit super like on them kind of thing so basically they're they're trying to create these two parallel classes, essentially of one of people who are like actually serious about the dating element, and then other people who are just more into it, sort of like casually as like you said, as a bit of a social network, I think
0: yeah, interesting look i mean and uh, on the TechCrunch article which we'll li- link to in the show notes, a spokesperson from Tinder said that they may introduce other filtering features as well, so if you've matched with people and then you can filter them by. Eye color, you know, like closeness, location. Um, in, interesting. I mean, I mean, it's what's interesting about these products. You know, whether you look at Tinder or Snapchat, is um, they all sort of land up becoming media, you know, hmm. me- media media platforms in a way. You look at Snapchat as as now, you know, um, the, these media um, products are pushing a lot of stories and things on Snapchat apparently it's doing incredibly well i haven't seen any of the latest things you know tinder's becoming more of a social media network and something um so um i guess the risk for them is um, always cannibalizing their initial initial value but maybe they reach such a critical mass that they they can afford to 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 muck around with it
1: yeah i mean the interesting thing is about all these networks i mean uh, very wise people a number of them have said that that Uh, Often the speed at which something rises can predict (laughs) the speed at which it'll fall. So I I guess a lot of these um, networks, especially like Snapchat and Tinder are are birds of a feather in in terms of how fast they expanded initially. Their initial user acquisition numbers were just really very, very impressive and one of the problems that they're having now is that they they have to be very intelligent about how they release new features now because the products are so simple that every new feature changes it quite qu- quite dramatically, and um, they have to move in a direction now where they can actually retain these numbers and they don't get seen as you know just another fad that that. Turned up and then and then disappeared. You know, ten years from now.
0: And in a way, Twitter, the the Twitter challenge, in, in a way, sums up what they face. Where okay, Twitter's sitting at three hundred million users, right? Does it focus on these three hundred million users, make um, you know business cases within that, and and serve these three hundred million users, and be good at being what Twitter has been good at being up until now, and being even better at that, or does it go okay? We want to be one billion and beyond, and we actually need to become something very different to mm. reach that. And and that's the same then for Snapchat or Tinder. It's, and and there's a case for both. I quite like the former argument. I think, um, you, you know, otherwise you land up uh, being too many things to too many people. But um, um yeah. I mean, uh, and I mean, Facebook. You know, you don't want, you know, I don't want any of these, and especially Twitter. I don't want them. I mean, if, if in my opinion, it would be like, well, we shouldn't be trying to be Facebook. Facebook's yeah. Facebook.
1: Yeah, I mean, the really interesting thing about about all of these <laughs> sort of companies in this dilemma, of which Twitter is one, uh, is that these social media networks are extremely vulnerable to the whims of their users en masse because the idea of, of leaving a social network is a very, uh, I guess viral is the correct word. It's a very viral idea. As soon as people... You know, as soon as a mass exodus starts among your social group, you don't want to be using that network anymore. And it just spreads from one person to the next. So they're always extremely wary that, you know, making the wrong decision could have the, their entire user base collapse overnight.
0: And it's not exactly the same type of product, but Craigslist is very famous for um, not making any changes, you know. Yeah, and, and, and they, <laughs> they've been exactly the same the whole time. I mean, yeah. they still sort of style of, you know, 1997 or whenever it was, it was started and... Um, You know, if if it don't if it's not broken, you know, don't fix it type story. But um, that's that has its own risks. Oh yeah, uh, um, as well. Um, You use um, something which I don't know many other people using, which is Telegram.
1: Yes, I do. Um, Um, Telegram for I. I don't know if we've actually spoken about
0: it on the podcast we, we, before we, uh, we might we, have i mean it's yeah. a, it's a whatsapp equivalent a more secure whatsapp yes built by the russian um, facebook the equivalent of russian facebook Yeah, um, those the, developers the
1: one of the original founders of vk i th- right. was it vk yeah one, one of the one of the russian major russian social networks um it's funded by a trust that was started by by him and they are Basically, their main central focus is they want a clean, extremely fast, uh, no frills, I guess, uh, messaging, instant messaging experience. And on top of that, they want it to be as secure as possible. They don't want people to be able to snoop on your messages. And if you want, you can even create totally private, encrypted, you know, chats that uh, even Telegram is totally unable to read themselves so you know even if they were served as subpoena by any particular government wanting to read the messages they wouldn't be able to decrypt them even so it's very it's
0: very focused on privacy security the i ra- want to know what you checked with about your friends that you need this level of unencryptable <laughs> conversation surely it's not just about the latest single by the indie and indie band well know? i
1: mean the the i'm i've never subscribed to the argument of sort of you have nothing if you have nothing to hide you have nothing to worry about kind of thing i just feel you know it's the kind of thing where um it's the same reason people have uh people have curtains you know in their house even if they're not doing anything in particular that's interesting it just just makes you feel the comfort <laughs> yeah exactly it makes you feel more comfortable knowing that it's even if you're doing just boring things at least it's in
0: private yeah <laughs> yeah it's like uh, where i live in sydney um you can. The, the position happens to overlook a big building with lots of apartments and um, a lot of you, people. One of the first things when they stand on my balcony is that, oh wow, you can, you know, you can see into those people's apartments. And I say, yep, yeah, but believe me, nothing ever interesting happens. <laughs> like. <laughs> you know that's most, not surprising, most, and it's probably the same on these chat networks like ninety nine point nine percent of chat is just totally benign Imagine
1: how boring it would
0: be to be one of those people at the NSA who has to sit there and just sift through all these <sighs> chats to try and oh god yeah. um, anyway, those thats social media networks we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk to um, we're going to play an an interview with Eric Elliot who's uh, from Parallel Drive. He wrote a fantastic article about building high-velocity um, development teams. Um, remember, you can tweet us at monkeypodcast. You can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Facebook. We love hearing from you. Um, we love putting these podcasts together about every two weeks. We're trying to be more diligent about them. This is episode 63. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the v- interview after the break.
2: The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you to work smarter and faster on Twitter. With Manage Flitter, you can schedule tweets for appropriate times, gain insight into your Twitter connections, grow your Twitter account, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com for a free trial.
0: You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. We talk about everything relating to tech, the tech economy, startups on the show. And as most of you know, I built a little company called Manage Flitter, which has over 3 million users and one of the big, if not the biggest challenge. Um, in my job is finding um, the right people to join us for uh, this crazy startup journey. And um, one of my team members the other day actually uh, sent me this article called How to Build a High Velocity Development Team, Be the Quantum Leap. And it's an absolutely fantastic article. If you're a a startup entrepreneur, if you want to be startup entrepreneur, even if you're a developer, this article really captures the challenge, the difficulty, the various uh, aspects um, of, of building a, uh, and the challenges of building a, a development team. And I'm happy to say I managed to track down the author, who's uh, Eric Elliott, who's the founder of Parallel Drive, which uh, teaches um, and, and trains people up in JavaScript, but uh, Eric's also worked at places like Adobe, etc. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. So, what was your initial, um, uh, was your initial uh, motivation to put together this uh, fantastic extensive article about um, building high-velocity velo- high development teams?
3: So, I think uh, most of it just came from frustrations that I've had over many years in the industry. And uh, I just kind of wanted to help teams avoid these problems that crop up again and again in just about every project I've ever seen. So um, I took a stab at trying to condense all of my um, my dev leadership experience into a, a single blog post and uh, hopefully I, I got enough in there to be valuable. And
0: you um, certainly state pretty early in the article, nothing predicts business outcomes better than an exceptional team. If you're going to beat the odds, you need to invest here first. And I know it's a cliche, people talk about the team, but it's really, um, I mean, that statement is absolutely 100% true. It is all about the people and nothing but the people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's not just having the right people, that's a big part of it. Um, but it's also figuring out the right team dynamic um, putting them in an environment where they can work well together and mesh as a team is really important too. So, um, and that's a process that I think it gets overlooked a lot. And I think the, primarily, like the biggest factor is that companies tend to undervalue their developers in, in a big way and try to treat them all the same, like they're all cogs in a machine. And I really wanted to stress no, like when you hire a developer, that developer represents about a million dollars per year in value if you're a good company, right? So you don't wanna treat them um, poorly. You wanna you want to set them up to succeed in your company.
0: And developers are really interesting people. I mean, I'm a, a, a tech um, sort of um, oriented uh, CEO, but I'm not actually a developer per se. I really, really enjoy working with developers. I find them, I find I find the way they see the world is quite um, quite different, and I, I hope that doesn't come come across as patronizing to any of developers. But I really really enjoy working with developers. They 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 um, you know they 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 seem to they seem to be really um, have have a couple of extra processes around uh, so to speak around um, you, you know the way they s- see certain things, and they on the flip side. I think they are certainly quite different to manage than than non-developers, you know, developers a lot of the time, you know, the information is very much um so communication is very much information exchange for example. So a lot of people get frustrated if they've never worked with developers before, they don't understand why developers don't like small talk for instance generally you know, I'm generalizing here, you know, but to a lot of developers, you know, communication is just information exchange. It's it's not small talk. Also, developers don't tend to tend to enjoy um, negotiating and things like that. They like the best offers up front and fairness. And so they quite, if people are going to, you know, uh, need to manage or build development teams, they really need to understand all these nuances to, to managing developers.
3: Yeah. And I think that there's there's really a lot of different types of developers, and as as we expand the tech education and things like that, we're going to start reaching a, a much broader um, type of in- individual who's attracted to the field. And and, and and matter of fact, I think that as time goes on, more and more every field will kind of become a developer's field. So um, in terms of like developer typecasting, I think a lot of that is going to is going to um, start to evaporate a little bit, but uh, it 's really good to understand that developers uh, what they do every day is they practice uh, they practice logic, and uh, when you do that all of the time, your brain kind of gets stuck in that mode right so um, for instance, when you interrupt a developer who 's deep in thought, they might be a little bit cranky but that's because it takes them about 20 minutes to sink back into the deep thoughts that they were thinking about. So um, I, I think just being aware of those types of things that developers are very interested in, in facts and everything is like uh, quantitative and uh, there's empirical evidence for everything when you're when you're talking about things. Uh, like if a designer says hey we should change that button color and the developer probably is thinking well no we should a b test it and see what the data says so yeah it's it's important to understand things like that about developers
0: and you've and you're very um you you really push for collaboration amongst developers
3: as well oh absolutely so one of the big problems in the industry is that there's a very wide range of skill sets And there's so much to learn about development that no one developer can learn everything they need to know. So what's really important is that developers have the means of communicating with each other easily without interrupting each other constantly. So uh, asynchronous communication like online chats tend to work really well for developers versus like a lot of people are used to working in an office together and they just walk over to their, their neighbor across the aisle and, and start talking to them. With developers, that's probably not the best idea because uh, that interruption is going to cost the business a lot of money, first of all, because when you interrupt a developer, like I said, it it can take them like 20 minutes to sink back into the problem. So asynchronous like chatting and communication that way or uh, emails rather than going and interrupting them is probably the best way to get them collaborating well. And there's also uh, things like GitHub that, uh, that let developers review each other's code using pull requests and and they can make comments on the code changes that some other developer made so if they could catch mistakes or they perhaps know a better way of doing something and there are opportunities to educate but there's also it works the other way. Some developers uh, will have a lot to teach. Uh, the more experienced developers will have a lot of wisdom around like how they think about code and so Exposing junior developers to uh, to the great code of a senior developer who's got a lot of experience is very valuable too. So, uh, yeah, definitely collaboration is essential when you're working with developers.
0: And let's talk about this. You you address the issue of languages, you know, and obviously there's um, and there's all sorts of languages in our in our industry, and um, I mean we like to take the attitude that smart developers can. You know, switch and change and learn. Um, you know, development um, languages as they need to. You're very bullish on on JavaScript. Um, talk us through why that is and and why you feel that. Um, I mean, do you feel that um, you know a, a language agnostic attitude is 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 best, or, or developers should perhaps focus on certain languages? Talk us through a little bit um, on your on your thoughts on that.
3: So, firstly, I think it's wise to to agree that developers really can pick up just about any language and learn how to be productive in it. So that's very true. And it's also very wise for developers to do that. Uh, I wouldn't want to know fewer than three programming languages personally because uh, different languages uh, have different ways of... Thinking about problems, uh, they kind of force you to think differently about pr- the same problems. So, being able to go into a different language and just see a completely different angle and a completely different approach to problem solving is extremely value, extremely valuable in and of itself. So, I would encourage a developer to uh, at least the junior developers who are just getting started. Um, you know, every every year, or year and a half or so, go ahead and like take. Uh Take your spare time and learn uh learn another language and just get at least conversant in it. get good enough that you can write uh simple programs um, but on the other hand, I think that specializing is also so important so a lot of the people that are the most successful are have gone really really deep in a certain area, and I think that that's extremely valuable as well. Um, and in terms of a specific language for your application stack, I, I strongly believe that all of your web, all of your web properties should be. Um, did you catch all of that?
0: I don't. You right. s- you switched. Um, you, 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 it, it sounded like your mic s- switched something. But keep on going. All of your web properties. Yeah.
3: So I I, I strongly believe that all of your web properties should be uh, written in JavaScript and the reason for that is that JavaScript is the only universal language, which means that, uh, it's another word for that is isomorphic, which means that it's the only language that runs natively in the browsers. It's also the only language that you can code in one language and you can have uh, the same application, not just like the same libraries or things like that, but the same application running on the server and in all of your clients, including mobile and browsers. So um, I think that the impact of that is dramatically underappreciated in the industry. Uh, and you know I really think companies can save about half of their development time, uh, or you know, 50 or 60 percent even, of their development time, just by picking JavaScript. Uh, and another great thing about JavaScript is that it's the most popular language in the world. Which means there are the most developers writing for it, which means there are the most solutions that are already finished that you can that are open source and you can incorporate into your projects, but it also means that it 's easier to hire for because there are a lot more people that know the language so um, definitely JavaScript <laughs> check it out do
0: you and, and Eric, do you feel i mean uh, you know um, In our little neck of the woods, there seems, in Australia, there seems to be a real skills crunch in developers, I believe, in Silicon Valley and other parts of the U.S. there's, as well, Long term, I mean, do you see um, a problem that, that there's not a diversity of people getting attracted to the industry? Does it still have a perception issue, or, do, or is it just because I'm a, I'm a CEO on, on, on the one side of the table, so it always seems like there's a shortage of candidates? Is there actually a shortage of candidates, and, and are enough people being attracted to this industry?
3: There is certainly a shortage of candidates and one of the problems is that we're just not teaching it like we should. Um, I strongly believe that uh, computer programming is the next, it's literacy, literally like our kids that are growing up in schools today, by the time they get out and they graduate into the workforce Uh, and 25 years or so there's gonna be in the United States alone there's gonna be four million fewer um, fewer driving jobs just driving vehicles because they're all going to be replaced by uh, self-driving vehicles and um, you know and the jobs that get replaced they're all going to be the programmers who design those systems and design the apps that work with those systems and you know believe me there's a whole industry of uh, commuting apps are going to pop up for people who are just sitting in these self-driving cars with nothing to do because they don't need to pay attention to the wheel anymore. Uh, you know, those kinds of things uh, are really important. There's, a, you know, it's it's not, not just one industry; it's every single industry across the board is going to be replaced. Uh, a lot of human workers are going to be replaced by um, artificial intelligence and robots and and just more efficient processes and more efficient way of doing things. And a, a lot of those people need to be training in the skills that will matter in that economy. Our future economy is much, much more digital than our current one. So uh, we really need to be training people for that. Um, and there's definitely a current shortage there's in the United states alone there's there's a standing demand for over three hundred thousand developers right now hmm. um, there's at least there's at least ninety thousand JavaScript jobs alone paying more than a hundred thousand dollars a year that are not being filled right now. That's a standing demand any just go any time and you can search, and there's ninety thousand open JavaScript jobs. So, um, and that's just in the United States, you know, worldwide it's much, much bigger. So, uh, and by that, by about 2020, this gap is going to increase uh, to about a million uh, open jobs for programmers that are not getting filled because there just isn't enough talent in the marketplace.
0: And I think there needs to be a seismic shift In the way we look at um, literacy, and and I think I think computer programming is still viewed as a an optional subject or something to do if you're interested in maybe perhaps, but we don't treat um, arithmetic or reading or writing that way. You know, we don't ask the kids, well, if you don't like reading or writing, you don't have to do it. It's like, well, (laughs) you know, and I think and I think code's got to be up to a certain level at least. Everyone should be able to whack up some markup or a little JavaScript app at least to that level.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I don't understand why students are forced to take statistics in high school, but they're not forced to take computer programming classes when they have the same kinds of applications, Uh, you know, and things like calculus and, and trigonometry. We teach the students those things, but we don't teach them how to apply those things on computers where they're most often used in the real world. If you're getting an engineering job and you're using those kinds of techniques, you're doing some kind of programming and it's ridiculous to me that we teach them how to do it on paper but then we don't teach them how to do it in a way that's going to make sense to them and transfer to usable skills. It's like um, there's, I don't remember which country it was or even which professor it was, but somebody went and and was speaking in um, South America, uh, I think it was a famous physicist, and they were talking about uh this the state of science education there, and they were talking about how um the students would learn something like uh, about you know for instance how light reflects off of surfaces and um, polarization and things like that and so they're talking about this polarization filter and they this the the professor says, what would happen if you held this up to the window and looked through the polarization filter at the water outside? And of course, uh, a polarization filter, you know, it'll invert the polarization so it changes the, the way that light is perceived. It, it makes it disappear or, or appear, you know, and it, and it can, that's why we have polarized sunglasses to help us avoid things. Um, but they don't understand the connection. Like they can tell you the the formulas. They can tell you exactly what the rules are, but then they don't understand that this has a real world application. So I think it's ridiculous that we're teaching students these things. Like a lot of people in the United States, they learn algebra, but then they have no idea how to use algebra once they leave high school.
0: You also make a point in your article about remote culture, um, working remotely. Now this is quite a... Quite a contentious issue. I mean, Marissa Mayer, when she um, moved into Yahoo as a CEO, I believe she she sort of ended a policy of um, remote work. Um, There's some companies like uh automatic which are the creators of the wordpress platform they are only remote we've we've had a mixture of both i mean to be honest um i'm always after the right team and if it means they're remote i don't i don't really care we to be you know to put it blunt we don't have the luxury of just over calibrating things on our end if someone's smart and fits with the culture you know we, we'll make it work you make some specific uh, points about uh, remote culture and you seem to be very um very um in favor of it
3: yeah absolutely so um i just want to make one more point about the last topic sure. before i run, run into this um i'm actually hosting a, a film called programming literacy uh-huh. um and that's being produced by js cheerleader on twitter um, but that film is all about the need for uh, better education and getting more people into the pipeline for uh, computer training. So definitely check that out uh, programmingliteracy.com.
0: ProgrammingLiteracy.com, um, we'll, we'll put a link in the show
3: notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so addressing remote culture, I think um, <laughs> a lot of people have this false perception that being in an office means that you're being productive. Um, Well, when you're talking about developers or even just anybody who who has to, like, really concentrate on their work to get something big done, um, it's absolutely... The the opposite is true. Like if you're in in the office, chances are you're getting distracted by a conversation that your coworkers are having, or you're weighing in on some API design that somebody else is responsible for, or you're getting distracted by the smells coming out of the kitchen. I know in San Francisco, at least, <laughs> uh, a lot of the startups have kitchens right there in the offices, um, and you know those distractions are tremendously costly and and really a developer if they're tackling a tough problem and not just like uh, you know correcting some copy on the website or something uh, a developer really needs big blocks of time like three hours of uninterrupted time to um, to just clear some of the big hurdles and what happens in the office situations is that developers in the office don't get a chance to do that so what they'll do is they'll come in very very early or they'll stay very very late so they can get that interruption free time or they'll spend their weekends clearing those hurdles and then they're working like 60 or 80 hours a week which is not uh, sustainable in in the most productive way. If you're overworking your workers the productivity will actually drop off around 40 hours a week. So. so the idea that the office makes people more productive is just is just patently false. It's, it's a complete lie that we tell ourselves. Um, I think that especially developers tend to get really passionate about the, what they're working on. And you can trust them to be working on the problem that's driving them crazy while they're at home, right? And if you don't trust them, why did you hire them in the first place, you know? <laughs> and I
0: think, I th- I think that's... I think that's the crux of it i mean i, th- I think it's about about hiring right, and i think some people do genuinely enjoy even developers enjoy being in the office and enjoy experiencing that that magic that happens when you can sit around a room or, or go for a walk together but there's some other times where where um you know even partly remote or you know they, they want to take a couple of days at home etc but to leave but but to trust them that they know what's best for productivity
3: yeah, absolutely. And I speaking of productivity, uh one thing that a lot of uh a lot of managers do is they count like the number of tickets that a developer is clearing and and calling that productivity tracking. And that's not the case at all because a lot of developers, a lot of the senior developers will spend a lot of their time answering questions for junior developers or mid-level developers. And mentoring them in their careers and, and helping them with the, the problems that they're working on. So a senior level developer's uh, impact is dramatically undercounted by those, uh, by those project tracking tools. Whereas a lower level developer who's not answering questions all the time, and has less experience at recognizing problems and and common things that crop up. Um, they're basically throwing a quick fix in the general direction at a problem and moving on to the next one, and um, you know so those kinds of things don't don't work at all. That kind of uh, productivity productivity monitoring. So if you really want to know whether or not your developers are being productive, you know once a week just ask them to demo what they did that week you know, and, and show, them, show the complete code and, and what they've been working on for the week. And then you can see by their demonstration whether or not they're making enough progress.
0: And I think it must be particularly frustrating for developers if they, um, this must be quite a common problem in non-technical companies when your managers are non-technical people and they oversimplify um, some of these metrics. <laughs>
3: Yeah, but I mean even even the more technical people like uh, programmers tend to trust numbers. If they see statistics staring at them, they they think, "Yes, this is real. This is representative." And they have a tendency to overlook the more human thing, the the more human aspects, the stuff that can't be easily quantified. So, and a lot of engineering managers start out as developers and programmers themselves. So they don't ever they don't ever really learn the the um, the really important soft skills that come into play when you're talking about developer productivity.
0: And it is I mean being as someone who's at the other the opposite end of the table as as the CEO and sort of leading the teams. It is something that's a bit of an art and, um, you know, when to push, when to pull, when to leave it alone, when to check in, you, you know. And, and I, think, I think one of the mistakes that I've, I have seen by some friends who have businesses and, and lead technical teams as well is, is at the end of the day, you can't forget that um, these are people you know, and and their productivity is also going to wax and wane and they, and they got their life and, and it's, and, and that's okay, actually, you know, this is a marathon we in together. And as long as over the long haul, we all produce something, that's okay.
3: Absolutely. And I try to tell managers when you're talking about a, a really experienced developer, give their, um, give their work more time to produce value because they're they're the ones that are mentoring your the rest of your team so they're obviously not going to make as many short-term wins as even the most junior developer in the shop who might come out at, you know come out of the gate like firing right and there's there's this real value that's being injected into the company by anybody who has a lot of knowledge and willingness to share that knowledge with the rest of the staff and that, that stuff is really hard to track and really hard to quantify. But you can, just, you can, you can feel it just by, uh, just by observing their interactions with the other developers and, um, and by asking the other developers that work with them um, what it's like to work with them. Uh, I think a lot of the junior level developers will be ranting and raving about how much they're learning on the job because of this developer. So I think that really takes a lot of time and you let, you have to let the value sink.
0: And I think also, um, you know, what I like about our industry as well is that it is an industry where juniors and inexperienced people can actually um, contribute a huge amount. And um, I'm always saying to the team that I'm always open to the right juniors. Um, it's, it's uh, I guess it's unusual in our industry that a lot of, you know, quote unquote juniors have been coding since they were 12 years old or something. So in a way, they've actually had a five years experience by the time they hit the workforce.
3: Yeah, uh, I started learning when I was really young and I know a lot of other developers get into development through video games that they got addicted to as kids, and they just wanted to learn how to do it. So there is, there are a large number of developers who started, um, who really started to learn this stuff, you know, before they were ten years old, even. So by the time they get to the workforce, they might have ten years of experience in the language you're hiring for, and uh, it just doesn't show on their resume. Um, but also, junior developers can be uh, tremendously good at soaking up new knowledge because they don't think they know everything. Mm. Whereas a lot of senior developers, uh, they do think they know everything. So, uh, cut out again.
0: That's okay. But, you, you with us?
3: <laughs> sorry. Yeah, a lot of senior developers do think that they know everything. And um, they're harder to coach and they're hard- it's harder to get them to improve um, and it's harder to change their mind about things. Whereas somebody who's really junior, uh, uh, a senior developer can come along and train them up in the way that you guys do things at your office um, in, in a really short time. And it's amazing how much people can learn when they're collaborating on projects. I think that that's really underestimated in classrooms, even. But if you give uh, a bunch of a bunch of high school students laptops and say, make this game in JavaScript, and then just walk away for three months, when you come back, even if none of them knew anything about JavaScript, when you come back, there's a good chance that there's going to be a JavaScript game on that laptop when you get back there, right? It's just, uh, I think it's a tremendously beneficial thing to hire those junior level developers and get the fresh blood into the system, they have new ways of thinking about things and and they can approach problems in a different way, and they, they might they might bring something very valuable to the team that you didn 't think that they would and then,
0: yeah, and as you mentioned there 's less rigidity um, you know there's, as we get older, and um, you know, I think to all of us there 's just you know we we atrophy in certain in certain ways and and i i I always love to to bring on the um, you know grads and the new the, the new fresh pair of eyes and and in fact, I try to sort of coax out of them what the, what they're actually seeing you know because to see any any operational sort of things that don't make sense to them and and try to make it safe for them to be really honest with um, yeah. you know to, to question some of our practices and go against my own um, you know um, naturally part of my job to be conservative in certain areas to actually push back on that and to let them refactor and rework and bring in the new tools and bring in the new technologies and not just just go down that uh, you know not go with the historical momentum
3: yeah, another great thing about junior developers is they might have really good ideas about new emerging platforms that uh, that a lot of people are starting to use that you may not be aware of, um, and so you can come up with good integration ideas and things like that, and and working with technology that you wouldn't have normally thought of. Like, for instance, we're coming up on a, a big augmented reality, virtual reality kind of renaissance. Um, uh, you know, in the '90s, it didn't really set in, but things are really starting to take hold in that department now. Uh, and maybe they have some really great ideas or really great experience with some technology in those areas that you haven't experimented with.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, well, I guess uh, Eric, we we're very lucky to to work in an industry that's um you know really at the forefront of of changing the world sometimes <clears throat> sometimes i wonder if um you know the people in business and people sitting on their facebook apps just just wonder um realize how how the you know the tech geeks of 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 various ages and various flavors are, are, are literally um you know building and running the platforms that shaping the world today
3: yeah i think that that's a really interesting point a, a lot of the kids coming up today, they're, they're digital natives, right? They're born into this internet connected society with screens that, that change when you touch them and, and interaction that's a lot more, more high touch, a lot more of a visceral experience. And they're going to view the world very differently than people like me who've been around for a lot longer. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, that's the challenge of moving forward is being able to adapt to those changes in the way that the way that people view the world and interact with new apps
0: It's always exciting when you see a baby playing with an iPhone and they just uh, swiping and swiping and swiping the screen <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that I like best is like when you see a baby trying to swipe the TV screen yes. or you know, or trying to swipe a, a magazine or a book cover and, and they don't understand why it's not working. They think it's broken.
0: Exactly. Eric, um, really been fantastic talking to you. Eric Elliott, the founder of Parallel Drive uh, for all, all training JavaScript. We'll put some, some show notes up. And Eric is the author of a fantastic article, How to Build a High-Velocity Development Team. If you're a startup person thinking of building a tech startup, read that article. It really nails it. Eric, I really appreciate your time uh, um, joining us on the podcast.
3: Thanks for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks a lot, Eric. We'll, we'll be in touch. Bye-bye.
3: All right. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com. Helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free.
0: Um, Nick, so definitely a topic close to our hearts: uh, building, yes. building, and retaining, and finding how to build a high-velocity de- development team. Be the quantum leap.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, the the author. Um, is very very interested uh i I think in a in a very undervalued um in a very undervalued area when it comes to building uh dev you know software engineering and programming teams in general which is uh education and and you know mentoring other people in the team and obviously that that affects what he does with his um what he's chosen chosen to do with his own personal startup at the moment obviously teaching people javascript um but yeah, the the one of the one of the interesting things that I really uh, would like to talk about as an aside is sort of the the idea of uh, JavaScript in general. For those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with uh, software engineering and programming. Um, JavaScript is a uh, lightweight uh, scripting language that traditionally for a long time has been the language that runs in your browser. So when you go to a website and you, you know, a lot of the visual elements that you'll see will be controlled, created or manipulated in some way with JavaScript. And just recently over the last, you know, number of years, as, as uh, was spoken about in the, in the interview uh, javascript has finally made the leap to being used um, in the back end and in in so many different places often people you know joke joke uh, about javascript running spaceships at some point eventually but i don't i don't suspect it's going to get there but but yeah you sort of get the point it's it's really interesting to see how it's expanded and gained favor as a language
0: and um yeah i mean definitely Eric, uh, eric's um you know the javascript which um is I mean I mean who actually what was JavaScript spun out of was it a W three consortium thing or what what was the origins of JavaScript I believe and
1: I'm not hundred percent certain on this but I believe that it was uh, created at Netscape originally I think. It was a project by just like two or three guys. Brendan Eich, so I don't know how you pronounce his,
0: his name in particular, one of the original creators of JavaScript. Um, and, and, and people might may also, it's important to note that actually the link between Java and JavaScript is actually not strong.
1: Well, yeah, non existent, unfortunately. Yeah, so yeah.
0: It's, uh, I think it's for non technical people, it's confusing. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> that they both have. Um, they both have the word Java in them. Um, yeah, you're right. It's Netscape. JavaScript was originally developed by Brendan Eich while he was working for Netscape. Um, yeah, so I have no
1: idea how to pronounce that guy's name, unfortunately. I'll have to look up the, the phonetics on Wikipedia just to see it. Yeah, so apologies to him if he ever hears this and I've made a horrible mockery of the pronunciation of his name. Um, but he ended up being, uh, I think the... The CEO, the chair, or the director—something uh, uh, along those lines of Mozilla—in in the later years, mm-hmm. um, as as obviously uh, a lot of people uh, are not yep. familiar with with the fact that Netscape, uh, a number of people in Netscape, it ended up being spun out into what we now know as the Mozilla Corporation, who of course make Firefox is probably the the browser. Firefox is probably their most um, uh, f- thing they're most famous for at the moment. Yeah, so JavaScript has been around for a long time, and it's uh, actually so interesting, even um, as a non-technical person, to learn about the history of programming languages and which ones have come in and out of favor over the years. And, you know, now, of course, uh, things are going to change even more drastically the way that he was speaking about teaching teaching uh, coding to um, uh, primary school students or, or people I when they're feel, very young. I
0: feel so strongly about that, as you can probably tell in the interview. I feel so, so, so strongly about the fact that, um, you know, coding is not, it's not being taken seriously enough. And yes, I, know, I, know, I agree. I know we've got a vested interest because we, you know, always often looking for developers and, um, you know, it's, it's the, to, to you know, the, the, the demand for developers far exceeds the supply. But there's no discussion. I know Atlassian, I mean, I mean, we're looking out of the window, Atlassian's across the street from us. I know Atl- Mike Cannon-Brooks has spoken about the same problem as well, is that if we have to, whether globally or in Australia, you know, we, we need, you know, the, you know, we're leaving a lot of innovation on the table, whether it's a cure for cancer or the next social media network or whatever it is that's, that changes our lives. Mm. I mean, Kate, Kate and I were talking the other day about... Um, facebook and how the concept of ambient intimacy has actually changed our life how you can stay in touch with people um it's a scalable it's made it scalable to stay in touch with so many Mm. people you know and i was saying to kate because she's a lot younger than me that well surely maybe people just did more face to face 20 years ago i'm like no we didn't you just lost touch with people (laughs) that's all that happened Anyway, the point I was making, you know, with more developers, you know, it's, it's that's what's driving innovation. These are a lot of technical innovations, and we need to take that seriously.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I honestly, honestly believe that in the next five or ten years, there is going to be a new startup unicorn, which appears around the area of of programming education, private programming education, and they're going to spread to a lot of different countries because I, I guarantee you, at first, it's going to be a lot easier for people to expand uh, support or, or send um, their, their children or, or whoever it may be to private programming schools than it is going to be to change the public schooling curic- curriculum because everybody, I think, knows... Um, you know, there are very few people who would have gone to gone to a public school or a high school that wasn't using, you know, still using textbooks that were printed thirty years before they got there. You know what I mean? Like the public school curriculum doesn't exactly change at light speed. So I, I really think there's going to be a huge demand for uh, private programming tutors uh, as as the new generation of people grow up in the in the same kind of way that um that uh, parents who are sort of I guess very very serious about uh, their kids succeeding uh, early on in education. Send their kids to tutoring for for maths and for for science and for English kind of thing. I, I guarantee you there will be a huge surge in sending kids uh, to to private lessons to learn coding.
0: What do you think as a developer about what of, a lot of what Eric says about finding the right developers, retaining and look, you know, your attitude towards your development team.
1: Well, it's it's really hard to know with this kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's super interesting that we have all of these like very, uh, I guess, th- th- there are a lot of attitudes towards how you should build a development team and that kind of thing that are all at very different ends of the spectrum. And I think it's it's very representative of how new the field is. Like, we don't have a sort of you know, if you if you went to a civil engineering firm, you'd probably find a very similar man- uh, managerial structure. At, at the vast majority of all the places. Um, whereas, you know, every, every single programming company that, you know, every single software company that you go into, the management structure is different, the project management structure is different, you know, the way that they actually uh, treat and nurture their developers is very different. So, you know, obviously it's, it's, um, it's, it's very much a, a, a matter of opinion. But I think... And
0: uh, an interesting thing is as well, you can get your technical architecture wrong your product right and succeed and the best example of that is twitter mm. right for years i mean it's interesting reading about the history of twitter and for years they never had like an admin backend. they actually had no for the first four or five years they had no visibility and into that's anything often, into yeah. anything and that's why they were going down so frequently and you know now they're a company turning over five six billion or something like that a year which is which there's very few companies in the world that do that
1: yeah, absolutely, and and just a little tidbit of of trivia there for you. Any software developers who are listening to this, or even people who are just familiar with the industry, uh, Twitter was originally built on Ruby on Rails, um, and unfortunately, they are now held up as the prime example of how difficult it is to scale Ruby on Rails into something that's really big. You guys might, but in
0: fairness, everything's difficult
1: to scale. Yeah, that's that's very true, but yeah, un- unfortunately. Um, I've experienced this, you know, a couple of times now, and I really think that uh, moving, you know, into the future, it's going to become a very common thing for startups to do, to uh, do a really, really fast, you know, build a minimum viable product as fast as they can using the technology that's built to to produce these things as fast as possible, and then after they they prove product market fit, throwing the whole thing out and and building it again with a plan to expand really big. I think this is going to become a a common trend because uh, it's what people are doing anyway. But at the moment, they're sort of spending a couple extra months or even years struggling with that initial architecture before they decide that they need to rework it. Whereas if they came at it with the plan that, okay, this isn't going to last for that long. If we succeed in product market fit, we'll, we'll rebuild this and do it properly. Um, I think that would save a lot of a lot of time and a lot of developer heartache for especially in a situation like twitter's they should have they should have realized years before they did that they needed to just rebuild the entire architecture essentially yeah.
0: i mean in fairness to them it's been stable and good and everything's been fine for for quite a while oh yeah
1: for the last for the last couple of years it's been it's, it's, it's been great' They've, it's, it's um and they have a a you know huge number of exceptionally talented engineers there as well i mean they We've just been reading about some new software packages they've been putting out for developers, Fabric, if you've heard of it. But yeah, they they have a great dev team now. They they got on their feet <laughs> eventually.
0: Yeah, and um, I mean, it's interesting you say about building the prototypes, et cetera. I mean, especially in the States now, a lot of the um, high, you know, the very successful um, angel investors and seed stage in, seed stage investors don't invest anymore unless there is a working prototype. In the old days... You could do it based on a business plan. Mm. But now, unless is a working prototype of some type of traction, because it's a lot easier, a lot cheaper. So cheap.
1: It's so cheap to get a working prototype out the door, prove product market fit. And the problem, I think, in my opinion, occurs when you start trying to take that initial MVP prototype and expand it out, build on the same foundations to, to try and support a massive massive user base once you hit that j curve that's that's when you know the problems start to arise and you know the really interesting thing is we've talked before about how facebook have have tried to handle it the fact that they're still using php in some in some cases oh we should definitely link in the footnotes of the show if you're interested there's a fantastic question on on quora about how and why Facebook still uses the the language phP in their in their architecture it 's a fantastic I, answer yeah
0: I love Cora um,
1: yeah it 's a really really interesting product, and I think they they took what Stack Overflow did so well for developers and they expanded it out to to really be successful for for the average person i guess it's
0: and I think the average user of Twitter or Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram they don 't understand or oh, let me rephrase that there 's not an appreciation for actually how complex these systems are because mm. they just work and the UI is simple. But if you read I think there's there I think there's a, a blog that's um high scalability or something. There's a blog that teases apart a lot of back end infrastructure for these sites. Yes. And um you know you can see the complexity of load balances and shards and all sorts of things. And, um, you know, the, the, the way I explain it to my non-technical friends is, and I might have spoken about this before on the show, where to make yourself a sandwich for yourself is really easy. And to make it for you and a friend, still easy. For three or four people, well, you have to start thinking and planning a little bit. Mm. Did a dinner party for ten? starting to get challenging, right? When you've got a room full of 500 people and they all have to be served at the same time. That's serious logistics it's there. It's like, good luck with that, yeah. right? And it's a similar type of scenario with scalability issues. Where Absolutely. With things just compound. So um, these, you know, there's, there's seriously smart people. There's seriously smart infrastructure, It's whether it's Google or Twitter or Facebook. It's, um, and the fact that the uptime is, is so fantastic. And we live in Eat and Breathe It as well, a managed product on, on a smaller scale. But there's a lot of deep technology behind keeping this stuff up and running.
1: Yeah, which circles us back around um, to this whole argument about uh, teaching people uh, to code when they're, when they're young because, unfortunately, one of the reasons that people have very little appreciation for these systems is they have absolutely zero understanding of even the fundamentals of how they're built. Um, so I wonder if that's going to really change things... Um, I mean, it's definitely going to change things in the security industry. I mean, one of the only reasons why a lot of sites these days, uh, you know, we've all heard about these massive hacks that have been happening on Ashley Madison and stuff like that. But uh, one of the reasons that everyone is still sort of safe at the moment is we just have so few people who are actually educated enough to know how to, you know, hack into these sites or or, uh, whatever along those lines um, that... Uh, sites can afford to be a little bit sloppy with their security because there are just so few people who are actually trying to exploit these things. But as soon as we start teaching kids kids to program, you know, the, the equivalent of being a teenage rebel is going to be hacking into Facebook.
0: Well, I mean... I think I went to a talk, it might have been a TED talk, about someone that's taken these um, special ruggerized laptops into Africa and, um, you know, g- basically just given them with the, to the young kids and let them play, play around with them. And um, they locked down a lot of, you know, the, so you couldn't get into mm. the command lines and everything. But, of course, kids being kids. They worked it months, out. They worked it all out, which is a fantastic thing in a mm. way, right? It's a fantastic... And now you can imagine... You know, I'm from South Africa. I, I've got to understand. I, I I would regularly meet people who I felt, if they had opportunities for education, would be doing fantastic things. So you can imagine, um, you know, how much untapped, you, you know, um, entrepreneurial hunger, technical hunger there is there. So we've still got a lot of, um, as a, as a as a humanity, as a species, we've still got a lot to um, to, to to sort of. Um, go horizontal with with giving equal opportunity you know and i think as an industry we may as yeah if, if we can if we can use our own tools to solve our own problems if we can create startups ed tech startups type thing you know and this is where government can play a role to stimulate yeah. these things
1: absolutely i mean look you all you have to do uh, to to really comprehend just how important programming and, and software development is all you have to do is look at how many sites online do you think are there where you know for extremely cheap you can hire a professionally qualified civil engineer you can hire a surgeon you can hire a lawyer you can hire whatever none of them exist there aren't there aren't these kind of things where you know oh I'll just go online to this website and I'll hire a, a surgeon in Bangladesh you know what I mean There's, this kind of thing doesn't exist because it's it's just not feasible but for programming you can hire an absolutely fantastic developer anywhere in the world really easily um, because it's totally decentralized and, it, and you don't have to be local in order to be able to do it. And it's, it's producing these, you know incredible results now in, in, in uh, developing countries. Uh, in, in which people are able to work, you know, because they're very qualified. They can learn all of this development stuff online for free. You know, the hardware is not expensive. You can use an old PC or whatever to do your development. Um, and then they can work for these huge overseas, you know, firms in, in developed countries and, and earn a very decent wage from that kind of thing. It's a, it's a great equalizer, in a way, I guess. Uh, development is a skill.
0: It is. And I think in uh, places like Bangladesh and India, I, mean, um, I don't know what the stats are. But I think a huge percentage of their development efforts are for… Um, overseas you know, companies. For overseas companies. Yes, absolutely. Good, exporter, good export owners for them as well. Mm. You know? By the way, I also wanted to say I know we have a lot of listeners from the U.S. And a lot of the U- people in the U.S. Um, that I meet are a little bit um, um, unaware that Australia is closer than they think it is. It's only one flight away from from uh, the West Coast. And our Australian dollar at the moment is really low. So if you're looking for a great, cheap (laughs) holiday, (laughs) come check, especially if you're a developer, right? Yeah. Come check out Australia and come uh, come visit us. Um, It's always sunny here um it's not as dangerous as people make it out to be yeah not
1: too many snakes and spiders and,
0: and if you have a little bit of savings um you're gonna get you know 70 cents oh uh, yeah
1: absolute bang for your buck at the moment
0: great us to australia yeah you yeah. only have to you get one of our dollars for 70 cents of your dollars mm. so um you, you know it's great great times for you um Anyway, that was episode 63. Hope you've enjoyed it. We've always got a lot of opinions about everything. If you've got an opinion, tweet us at monkeypodcast. Uh, Email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. Even if you want to give a a product a punt, um, send a little voicemail message through. We'll play it on the show. Um, We'd love to hear from you. We have listeners from all over the world. You can also subscribe for an email notification if you go to itsamonkey.com pop in your email address. Um, I put together an email that just goes out and says, hey, the latest episode's live. That way you don't have to think too hard about it. Subscribe on iTunes. Um, and um, there's some great other tech podcasts. Um, that have, yeah, Podcasting's definitely hitting a nice resurgence. The re, definitely. The Recode, um, Kara Swisher, who's from Recode, she's put um, some great podcasts up. She's got one with Mark Andresen. Uh, one with Chris Saka, um, where he speaks about his opinions on Twitter, which was really, really interesting. He's one of the biggest um, shareholders of Twitter yeah. and ex-Google. He had a budget in his 20s. When he was working for Google to um, build some data centers for Google. In his 20s, he had budgets of billions of dollars to wow. build data centers. <laughs>
1: wow, that's yeah. amazing. Oh. Yeah,
0: really interesting story. So. Yeah. Um, um so yeah um so check out um you know we're always happy to promote any other podcast as long as uh spread the word about our podcast and we will see you in two weeks uh, wherever you are i hope you have a good one